You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts today are Carlos Casados, Satch Purcell, and myself, Oliver Altine. Now, a little while back, we did a live event with a local jazz band called Redshift. In this episode, we sit down with Danny Hoffman and Stu Goodis from Redshift and get deep. We're going to talk about the intricacies of tone on the guitar and the saxophone. We're going to talk about the conflict between simplicity and complexity in music, and also music in different cultures. And of course, we're going to listen to some of Redshift's music. You can find their website at redshiftmusicworks.com. Good evening, Carlos. Good evening, Satch. You know, I like company. I like plenty of company. And usually there's three's company, but today there's a lot more than that. Yeah, I know. We've got this. This is the most guests we've ever had on a show, I think, isn't it? I think so. The most guests we've ever well, had, it, yeah. It, unless you count the Redshift event that we did. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. No, but we do have more in a way at one time because Oliver is joining us tonight. That's true. Our producer, What's up, Oliver, guys? the How musician. You doing? Yeah. Hey. Good evening, Oliver. Good evening, Carlos. All right. So we're here with Redshift. And we did an event with them, and that was a lot of fun. That was that was really interesting. It was intriguing. And uh, now we're really doing a, a, an actual sit-down where we can just take our time and uh, uh, get to know these guys. Um, well, get to know Stu a little better. And we know Danny pretty darn well. Mm. Um, but uh, it's, it's cool that Oliver's joining in because, you know, we, we get to have a musician to help us out a little bit. Well, when you guys interviewed the guys, uh, or the guy and gal from Incendio Band, I was sitting over there just chomping at the bit because I was like, ah, I don't have a microphone and I want to talk about music. So yeah, thanks yeah. for letting me. Uh, well, Danny Hoffman and Stu Goodis, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, so uh, you guys have a band called Redshift, which uh, I used to be a member of. Yes. And am no longer a member of. And Stu has filled my shoes uh, marvelously. Hmm. So you. let me just ask you, Stu, um, did it feel like you were joining someone else's band, or did you make it your own as soon as you stepped in, or how did that transition work for you? Uh, a little bit of both. It, it did definitely feel like I was following what was going on, something preconceived, and it, it took a few months to transition toward something that felt more like I had a, a controlling drive, let's say. Right, because you definitely have a different sound than I do. You're a very different guitar player than me. Agreed. There's some overlap, certainly, for sure. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm coming from um, maybe a stronger jazz side, and right. your style might be a little more funk and blues. Yeah. I'm a little, maybe a little more rough around the edges than you are. Because when I listen to you play, man, you've got this beautiful, round, warm, really, it's, it seems like you've really put a lot of work into refining your, your tone, your guitar sound. I'd say so. Yeah, that's a big part of it. So what do you, what do you use? How, how do you get that beautiful, warm, amazing sound? Yeah, um, the instrument choice of the design on the instrument. So I, the guitar I'm using now I had built for me. Oh. And I, I strung it a little heavier than it's a solid body guitar. Generally, people string them a little lighter, so oh. I went a little heavier. And and the technique of how I strike the string is part of it too. I, th I think if I played a variety of guitars, I would probably make them all sound like my guitar. Right. I would hope. So I have a I have a question for the 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 not so 
musician here. Um, what does that mean to string it heavier to string it light? What's what's that? Right. So electric uh, solid guitars that are not acoustic are usually strung with very thin strings. Okay. So you could play fast or shred, as they say. Okay. Whereas acoustic guitars and hollow body jazz guitars, big jazz box, are strung with heavy strings, thick strings, higher tension, thicker, rounder tone. So I had always played those heavier guitars up until a few years ago. And when I switched over to solid electric guitars, I retained the, a little bit of the heavier string. Cool. Yeah. So the tone that I'm, the, the voice that I hear myself in is a rounder, full, warm sound. Hmm. So even though I'm playing a guitar that's traditionally played edgier and sharp sounding, I, I do try to get that warmer, round tone. Hmm. Okay. Cool. You also have this, uh, the, the, this awesome setup you know, the stereo effect thing that, and, and that your guitar actually right. produces stereo sound right from the beginning and, and you use these two, uh, two amps and it's just really yeah. like what Oliver was saying, gives you this, this glassy and very clear and sound mm -hmm. and then the way you manipulate it is just um, yeah. really nice. The stereo is, is important because I want that width and the depth. If you don't have stereo then you can get the depth from the reverb but you can't get a, a wide sound oh, okay so stereo just kind of gives a bigger space i see yes. well that's what it sounds like and, and when we play together i love it yeah for sure danny kind of curious about your take on on what was that like um to be playing with oliver and then Oliver was no longer part of the band, and then and then Stu came in. So how how was that transition for you? Well, <laughs> it's okay. You can be. I honest. was heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you know, you know, I, I, it was a transition that I wasn't expecting really. Uh huh. But you know, you you got to go with what comes at you, and. Um, it was awesome playing with Oliver, and, and uh, now I'm just super happy that our bass player, Martin, who couldn't join us tonight, uh, invited Stu. And, and when we started playing, I, I really, mm. you know, I thought this this was going to be really cool, too. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a great thing that you guys didn't need a divorce attorney, and you could arbitrate, and now <laughs> yeah. you're happy again. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and uh, I mean, to me, you know, that's, to get upset about stuff like that is, yeah. And, yeah. and, and just to be clear, I yeah. I didn't leave for any you know personal reasons. We didn't have a fight oh, or anything. Come no. on, Oliver. I'm trying to kind of like I'm trying to <laughs> create, insinuate create some, some drama, some drama in here. You know, <laughs> I, I I just I left because I wanted to have time to just do composing and kind of do my own thing so, and yeah. do the authenticity show. I actually, started a, started a podcast. It was a hard decision to leave because yeah. I love playing with Danny. Yeah. But I sort yeah, of feel like Stu. I, I kind of feel like you're the perfect guitarist for this band. Anyway, I, hmm. I when I listen to you guys play, it's like it just seems so right. You know, yeah, there's a real compatibility. It was immediately recognizable with Danny, and uh, and I knew Martin before that. He and I have been playing together for 25 years, so that helped quite a bit. You know, stepping into that. 
In fact, you and Martin used to play at a coffee shop that I worked at a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, Renaissance Coffee, which is now a Starbucks. Yeah. Of course. Is, yeah. Yes. Uh, the coffee, coffee and music connection. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. cool, though. We had live music mm-hmm. seven nights a week at that coffee shop. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And I remember I, when you worked there. I remember going in there all the time. Me and Tanya, you wouldn't, like, yeah. back when we were dating, we used to go there all the time and get like hot chocolate at night. And yeah. Oliver would quite frequently make my hot chocolate. You did a really good job. So tonight you gave Thank me you. bubbly water, but you used to give me hot chocolates on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel any loss of love from the lack of chocolate? Well, like Danny, I was disappointed, you know, when uh, <laughs> Oliver was no longer at Renaissance Cafe. Yeah, were you but, heartbroken, though, is the question. Um, Yeah, I was heartbroken, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, you, 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 you moved to, on, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, you, you move on, yeah. you know, you put it in the past, it scars mm-hmm. over. Totally. Yeah, yeah, so I can talk about it now. I feel your yeah. pain, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, cool. Well, you know, I'm, what I'm hoping, and every, every once in a while when you guys say something about like your playing style or something, I'm going to ask, is there a song that reflects that? So like just yeah. a little bit ago, we were talking about, you know, what it is that makes Stu's sound, you know, the, the way it comes out. And uh, is there a song that, you know, you really think showcases that, 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 is, that is showing really what you're talking about? Yeah, we just finished the track for uh, Whiskey Tango. That would be a good example. Okay, Whiskey Tango. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, let's do it.
I loved it. That was awesome. You yeah, know, it's that's kinda, great. It's sort of soft and crisp at the same time. Yeah, um, that's that's the only way I know how to describe it. Yeah. Soft and crisp. Is that is that what you're going for? Uh, yeah, the the songs evolve. And in fact, that song started out as a tango, and uh, we played it, and we knew something wasn't quite exactly done, so it became a reggae, as it turned out. Mm. So. I had to come up with a new title for it, so I decided to call it Whiskey Tango. Mm. It's sort of mischievous sounding. That's I was cool. talking yeah. with uh, yeah. Danny about how I was imagining wandering around uh, back alley streets and drinking whiskey. <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. So Makes what is, what is the difference between tango and reggae? I mean, they're two totally different styles, but they're related, I guess. Right. They're related in that they're not jazz swing Right. So that's okay. probably the most strong relationship that they have. <laughs> right. Um, so they, they fall into the category of Latin. Of right? Latin, and they have an even rhythm to them, right. unlike swing, which is uh, uneven. Right. Is there a, like a standard chord progression that's happening here? Oh, uh, it's a minor key. It's there's nothing in there that I'd say is really out of the ordinary. It's uh, it's a little asymmetrical, so meaning some of the phrases they go a little long. So you might expect the melody to come back around, but there's a few more bars. So that right. was part of the composition. Nice. Hmm. And so this is unreleased, right? That's correct. This is is there a release date for this new album? We're hoping by the end of the year, I think. So uh, what about you, Danny? Uh, you you play the saxophone, um, lots of different saxophones. And I do. And other things too, right? Not many other things, no. I wouldn't say it. I mean, I dabble around with other instruments, but really the only way, only one I would claim to play in any my least <laughs> proficient way would be the saxophone yeah saxophone is all you'll admit to uh, right now pretty much <laughs> on the i mean I, you know i like a, i like a lot of instruments I, I, I picked up the flute 10 years ago so i, I guess i could say i play a little bit of flute i know you you get we we've done some some recordings together yeah we you played, played on my flute. last album i love your and, flute playing i mean yeah, me too saxophone i'm glad you admitted is, that who's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gonna have to whip out the polygraph oh yeah <laughs> in, i mean in 10 years now. that's 10 yeah. years that, that's a long-term you know, instrument on the side, you know, it's... Yeah, it is, know. it is. So with your saxophone playing, who, who, uh, how do you think about your sound? Where, where does your, your, uh, your approach to your sonic kind of palette come from? Do you have, like, players that you try to emulate, or is it just all your own thing? Or where does that come from? Well, there's, there's things that I, you know, that I really like and sounds that I really like. Obviously, John Coltrane um, is the biggest name that Obviously. people... Well, I'm just saying that because I know. you know, I know <laughs> I a lot John of people Coltrane. don't may not may not have be familiar with him, but he yeah. probably is one of the most familiar jazz musicians, you know, in the world. So right, well, um, and some so saxophone? wouldn't surprise any saxophone players if I said that, yeah, like John right. right. But uh -huh. for from my perspective, it's not uncommon to hear people say they're not crazy about Coltrane's tone, though. You know, um, even though I am a fan, but. yeah. True. I mean, his I mean, tone is a I've little heard, bit I've heard people say that. It's a little sharp, right? Uh, I mean, not sharp as I in, think like, it, out of you tune. Know, you, like. Yeah, you have to... I mean, the, 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 it depends on what era you're thinking of, too, because, I mean, he kind of changed his tone when he started playing more avant-garde and free. And he, he opened up his overtones on the, on the saxophone. And one of the beauty, beautiful things on the saxophone to me is that it's kind of like a voice. If you really allow it, you can... 
um, fill fill the tone with with a lot of overtones. Um, you can also like narrow it down and make it more like you know a classical tone. Although I think that's one of the reasons that classical musicians never really took that much to the saxophone is because it's hard to narrow it down even you know to the to the extent that they like it like on a clarinet or a, or a flute. yeah. There's not a lot of saxophone concertos out there. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's quite a few classical saxophone players that I've come across, so it, it is definitely a thing. But that's to me the, is the beauty of, of of the saxophone is that you can control, you know, your sound with your embouchure and your and your throat. But I like, um, you know, if, if if there was probably somebody, one other person that I really emulate would be Archie Shep, Archie who was Shep. A, a guy who played with Coltrane in the later days when when they were going really avant-garde and free jazz, you know, and uh, from that really powerful free playing, he developed a sound that's, that's really unlike anybody else. So then when, later when, he, when you heard him playing more, more conventional things, you know, and tunes and melodies and so on, it, it, it's, it's just such a rich, rich sound. Mm. You know, Danny, it's interesting to somebody who's maybe not familiar with blowing into an instrument. Right, mm-hmm. uh, you just look at a saxophone or a flute or some kind of horn, and you just think, "Wow, you know, you blow into it, and the sound comes out the way it comes out." Mm-hmm. You know, yet, yet um, you're talking about how there's so much that you, the player, do, like within your body, that changes the sound. Um, you mentioned the armature. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means, maybe for people who aren't familiar with and overtones, sort of thing? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to yeah. ask about overtones too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The armature is basically. The way you hold your mouth, your jaw and lips and everything in order to produce the sound on any wind instrument. So, um, you know, you use your shape, your mouth in a certain way in order to uh, get the sound and then you can manipulate that. And beyond that, it, what I've come to learn is that, you know, when you're playing a, a wind instrument, you're not just playing the instrument because the sound reverberates in your body. So you're your body becomes its own sound chamber, in a oh, sense. Okay. And you have this... So what I now look to achieve is, is like a, this feeling of my body being intimately connected to the, to the horn and creating one sound. And that's why every horn player sounds a little bit different, mm, you know, at least if okay. they've worked on it a little bit. So you're the other... So, so you're like... It's almost like the saxophone's blowing into you in a way. I mean, like, but at least well, like in terms of vibration. Yeah, because you're, you, again, you it's like, kind of like singing, except in singing, you don't have the instrument. Yeah. You have your, your whole, yeah, everything's vibrating. You guys <laughs> better stop all this talk about blowing into each other. I know, I was, I was, you know, um, I was thinking of that. I was, I, was, I was choosing my words carefully. Yeah, it's in the intimate relationship there. with your <laughs> instrument. And I yes, know. Oh, uh, uh, saxophone is very intimate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can get pretty gross too. Oh, bet you know. Bet yeah. In fact, at least you're not like a brass player who empties like the spit valve onto the orchestra floor. You know. Yeah, that's well. You know, we by, with us it just collects in the bell, and then now and then we have to pour it out. You pour it out. Wow. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you know, I, I, as you're describing that, I, I get the image of a of a tree, and we only see the top of the tree, right? Yet there's the whole root system under the ground. There's a whole other side yeah. of the tree. It's more like a dumbbell. You it's know, a real good metaphor. Thing. Yeah. So so um, like you, yeah, you're like the roots underneath. You know, the, mm-hmm. the sacks. Yeah. You know? Um, that's interesting. Wow. Um, like Carlos had had asked about overtones. Could you like if somebody is unfamiliar with what that is, what that sounds like? How would somebody listen for that? What, what, what would they hear? Overtones are 
basically anytime you have a sound, there are notes that are singing above that basic tone that you're hearing. Mm. So basically the idea is you've got, like, like s- suppose you have a low tone, and if you listen carefully, there's also a high tone hiding in there. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've heard overtone singers. Yeah. That's, it just blows my mind. It's beautiful. You know, I always thought a good analogy for overtones living inside one single note uh, is white light. White light is refracted. There's all the colors are inside mm-hmm. the light. Right. But okay. you just see it as one color just like a note has all these other notes living inside it even though you might just notice the one note mm-hmm. but all the the all the different overtones combine to create the the particular sound of whatever instrument you're hearing right that's neat i was actually thinking of, of a visual metaphor as well but i was thinking of um like a pool of water with the light reflecting off of it just right so you could really see the ripples and when those ripples bounce against each other they overlap and create new shapes and forms mm-hmm. and and when that becomes a consistent uh tangible discernible shape that's like an overtone that's pretty mm-hmm. much what it is yeah yeah, yeah that's beautiful. a good visual representation so, so on a guitar um uh, so like if you hit the low e does the high e vibrate a little bit i mean is it, would that be kind of a similar kind yeah, of concept that, that's or? actually called sympathetic vibrations oh sympathetic vibrations. so okay. it uh it it will begin to vibrate the other strings just because they're attached to the same instrument yeah. but the idea of overtones exists on any anything that generates sound has overtones this is goes back to pythagoras figured all that stuff out and that's how we know what all of our common system of notes are because he heard these tones oh, okay but on a guitar you can uh you can demonstrate it by dividing the string if you find ex- the exact halfway point of the string and then you slightly just touch that part of the string and then you strike the note you'll hear the first overtone isolated mm. by itself okay and then as you divide the string in half again you then get the next overtone and it's called the overtone series and it just keeps going up and up. And this mm. is commonly known as playing harmonics on the guitar. And they're called harmonics. Yeah, harmonics. So it's the okay. harmonic series is another term yeah. that's used. Cool. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how anything you get into becomes so interesting and complex the deeper you get into it, you know? Yeah. Even something that seems so simple has such a complexity and richness to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like that, that's so true of so many topics. I mean, we have sympathetic resonance sympathetic uh, isn't that frequency right sympathetic yeah frequency. Sure, sure. i Absolutely. mean human beings we you know all of us yeah. are you know in this room have some sympathetic frequencies that, that we yeah. get in our conversations and uh, yeah i feel like a lot of people have this intuition that truth is simple reality is somehow simple fundamentally but i think reality is complex mm-hmm. <laughs> sure indeed there's a whole lot agree. of it yeah it's <laughs> a whole lot of it you know <laughs> well you know we've I was reading an interesting book. Sorry, no, it's quite um, right. Yeah, where he, uh, the, the author, states that intelligence is the ability to make finer distinctions. I love that, and and for me, understanding sometimes comes from finding uh, sameness, and sometimes from difference, like a contrast. And so when I hear that, I, I resonate with that completely. To use a musical uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, metaphor, but also. Um, I think of Einstein's idea of intelligence being related to, you know, being able to explain something simply, like to, to simplify a complex idea, like, you know, could you explain this to a five-year-old? Um, so both of those things seem true. They both seem to have value. But in particular, when you think about them together, like those two ideas, 
you get a bigger, broader picture of what's possible for intelligence in a way. Yeah, you know, not that that's we, it, but we, we were just resonating right now. Oh yeah, yeah. you were thinking because, something because, similar. Yeah, yeah, because you know, like, like Dan, like, like what you just said, it's you know a, a finer distinction of difference, right? Yet also intelligence is zooming out higher and seeing grosser levels of distinction too. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like it's like wherever you're at, you got to be able to go up or down the scale, so to speak. You know, and right. and see either finer, 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 smaller, smaller. Or larger, 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 you know? Well, isn't, I mean, uh, you know, Stu and Danny, um, uh, isn't it true that, like, like with musical tastes, sometimes people, they have a tendency to like things that are simpler. Mm-hmm. And some people like things that are very complex when it comes to music. So the, There is a, a challenge that exists, and that's the, the conflict between, from a performing standpoint or music, musician's standpoint, the conflict between simple and complex. Because in your uh, the time you spend to develop your craft, it can be very complex. Mm. But the goal is to be performing where it feels very simple. And that conflict of those two things, that's always you know, What's going the, on. Like uh, the flow states that uh, Danny and I were, mm-hmm. were uh, working with recently um, in a class that we both took. Um, and, you know, there's the state of performance, mm-hmm. you know, a high, high performance state. And there's a state where you might be practicing and refining. And those are totally different. They're not meant to be the same. But sometimes people uh, confuse the two. But they're sure. really, what one does involve a simplicity mm-hmm. and a performance in mode when you're really just doing it. You're hearing the music. You're not inside your head going, oh, this next part's difficult or tricky. I better prepare. You know, you're not exactly. doing any of that nonsense. Exactly. But when you're practicing trying to improve yourself, maybe you right. might be doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you have to spend that, let's say, 10,000 hours of, yeah. of all that hard work to get to that moment where you're not thinking about any of it. No mind. I think there's a couple of issues that relate to that. Over the years, I've thought about how different musics developed in different areas of the world. In the African continent, you know, the emphasis was on uh, rhythms and polyrhythms. In the Middle East, you find a lot of multi-rhythms. And then in Indian music, you have a lot of drones, and you have the very, very fine distinctions between notes that are way finer than what we are used to in, in Western music. Each, each area of the world where these cultures evolved, they took the time to develop those aspects of the music and really, really delve into the uh, details of them. You know, so, but then, you know, for somebody outside of that to come to that music, they won't understand it. Mm-hmm. They, and it may not even sound like music to them. I mean, if, if, mm-hmm. if, uh, I think for a lot of Western and European people to listen to an African drama ensemble, they, they wouldn't understand what's going on at all. Yeah. It sounds messy. Or yeah. Something. It just sounds like a mess. Yeah. Or, you know, if, if they listen to Indian music, they, they'll hear the drone and they'll be like, oh, well, that, you know, it's just, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't go anywhere because it's just, you know, because we're used to harmonic movement or yeah. something like that. And, and so, you know, and, and in Western music, we really focused on harmonic development and the melodies that associate with that harmonic movement, but we really kind of neglected the rhythmic aspect of music. And right. so in Western ne- classical music. In yeah, music. in Western classical music yeah, in particular, sure. yeah. I'm talking about the, you know, the sort of classical art forms, like, uh, in these different cultures. It's, right, yeah. uh, you know, music is something that has to be taught. 
uh, and people, you have to learn to listen to it. And I think that's what, what all these cultures, you know, all, the, all our differences prove, is that it, it takes time to learn to listen to jazz or to it learn really to does. listen to classical music. And sometimes you have to be told, here, listen to this, check that, you know, mm-hmm. you notice that? Yeah. Right? And um, that's where, where I think you, you move into the art of music. Whereas, you know, music has a lot of other functions too, entertainment, dance. And if you want to reach a larger audience, you're going to make it simpler. So in my, in my mind, the simplest syncopation is the backbeat, right? Techno. It's, it's technically, <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty much it. Yeah, I got that down, the simple stuff. But that is basically our first syncopation. You know, if we don't do that, then we're just doing our classical marches, you know. So from there, if you want to do your first syncopation, now that it'll go be off off the beat like that and, and you add that in and then then you're off into a whole different rhythmic world yeah i, I remember when i first started learning how to play jazz I, I i went to school for classical guitar right you know i got my master's degree in classical but when i started playing jazz somebody told me um set your metronome for beats two and four and i was like really the metronome on two and four and it was hard at first i was like yeah. shit that's like I was getting all kinds of messed up, you know, but if you put the metronome on two and four, so there's not a click on beat one, it just feels different. It's like a, kind of a cool like thing that happens. What, what, you know? what does that sound like, like two and four? It's well, like, if there's four it's beats, like this. Yeah. One, two, three, four, one, two. Oh, okay. It's, it's rooted Basically in what you were swing doing music, so oh, okay. in the 20s and 30s, when, when that style kind of took hold, that became very normal. Later, it just became the snare drum on a rock beat mm-hmm. that's so, two and, and that, four right? and that's the backbeat so what you're talking about is the backbeat is kind of like the backbone of music for the last you know 60 years or so sure you're listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados, Satch Purcell, and Oliver Altine. Up next, we continue our conversation with Danny Hoffman and Stu Goodis from the band Redshift. You can find their website at redshiftmusicworks.com. We'll talk a little bit more about the songwriting process, including some great musical examples, also how to fool restaurant owners, and the evolution of music and the origins of jazz. I, yeah. I want to mention something. I, I think it was when we uh, did the show with Incendio, mm. uh, and I think it was I think it was JP from Incendio that said this. When there's a singer, that the show's more about the musicians and the singer, but when it's instrumental, really it's more about the audience. And that really struck me when he shared that. And because um, you guys are an instrumental band, mm-hmm. right? Are, and yeah. so I don't know. Do you, do you has that been your experience that because you do um, music without vocals, is it? Also more about the audience. I don't know, or is that different for your kind of music? I don't. I don't think so. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's that? No, what's that experience for you? I think it's more about the interaction between within the group. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. There, yeah if yeah. there's no singer in the middle, then it it kind of levels the playing field. So now each instrument becomes 
has a stronger voice and a potential voice to be that front voice at different times. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But there is a piece of music that you reminded me of by John Cage called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And the, the, the music is completely silent. And it would be performed. The pianist would step up to a piano and actually place music on the piano and do nothing for four minutes and 33 seconds. And the point of the piece is that the audience is the piece, the sounds and the breathing and, mm. and people clearing throats and things like that. Wow. Interesting. Okay. It's wow. very da-da. I love so, that. I, I seriously considered right? doing a guitar transcription of that piece for my uh, <laughs> oh, recital nice. at, when, and, you know, when I was okay. at Cal State Fullerton. Sure. I'm sure they would have appreciated <laughs> I, it. And... I, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't have the balls to do it, <laughs> Yeah, though, I don't know? think it would have went over very well. Have you ever performed <laughs> that piece? No. <laughs> yeah. I perform it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for you guys, because, I mean, you're professionals. You've done this a long, long, long time. Um, when you're putting your songs together um like i i just hear you and think oh just you know it just sounds good you just get together and you can do it but um i mean do, do you really hit the wall sometimes i'm like how hard do you have to work sometimes to pull something off it varies some things well we each will compose a piece so the the, the beginning elements of it are already in place and then we'll bring it into a rehearsal situation and sometimes it's just automatic. It happens immediately. Okay, so we go either way. It's yeah. very intuitive. And, and there are other times when it, it's, it may be a struggle and then just can it. Mm. So it, it varies. Are there any, um, any pieces um, that you can think of that were a struggle and you got through it and created something really nice? Well, there, are, there was a piece that we did that we actually recorded on our first CD called Forward. And it's the first piece that I wrote for this band. Okay. Okay. Oh, particular Just after I replaced Oliver. Ah, the very first piece. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was it had two sections. It had a very slow section and a faster section. And it took about a year, even after we recorded it, it took about a year for me to realize that the first section was far better than the second section. Oh, so okay. I got rid of the second section entirely and composed more of what the first section evoked. Ooh. And so now oh, we wow. have a cool. new composition, as, as I see it, and that's called Forward Vision. Forward Vision, as wow. opposed to the original, which was Forward. Correct. Wow, very great. cool. That's really great. Yeah, sure. that's neat. It's not the first song he's done that with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a trend, huh? Well, yeah, cool. should, we, should we give it a listen? I'd like to hear it. Yeah. So let's sure. listen to Forward, the first recording that you were talking about.
So that was the first version you recorded. That was the first version of Forward. Right. And so there's some very different, like the first part was slow and sort of mm-hmm. slinky or what, I don't know how you call it. Right. So the, the concept was to um, create a uh, kind of a journey. That, right. That's what the song was supposed to be. It you know had a certain mood in the beginning that led into another mood. But you just didn't like where it led. The the second part didn't sound worthy of being attached to the first part. All right, <laughs> but you have since rectified this error. I, I fixed it. Okay, so can we hear the new version? We certainly can. All right, here we go.
and, and that was such a great example for me of simplicity and complexity in the same song. Mm. For mm -hmm. me listening, just you know, maybe it's just my perspective or whatever, but um, it's and it had that surprise and it had the expectation. You know, I mm -hmm. found, you know, my head kind of and my body tracking the rhythms in unexpected ways. Like I didn't expect my body to suddenly move in the way it did. So there was like an unconscious part of me that was following and really enjoying it. And then other parts of me that would find myself grinning and smiling because mm. I don't know if I expected it or didn't expect it, but right. it tickled me in some interesting way. That's that's part of my process of composing. There's a certain amount of, uh, I'll say equal amounts of surprise and expectation that I'm you know, playing on the listener. Do you actually, when you're composing, actually say, now what would everybody expect to happen next and what could I do instead? To a degree, yeah? absolutely. Because okay. yeah. I, I was sort of lulled into thinking that that was a nice slow song, but it wasn't slow. There's a lot of speed there too. Yeah, sure. You know, and so uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if it was slow or fast. Yeah, I, sneaky speed. You know? There's rhythm yeah. within the rhythm would yeah. be a way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Drummers call it subdividing. You have, you know, the meter which is the basic beat, and then you have divisions within that that you can use to take something that's slow and make it sound like it has a little more energy. The slow blade penetrates. Mm -hmm. Sort of reminds me of, um, of, of tabla playing, right? Because, right. Th because there's a lot of um, speed and little flutters and flourishing moments, but it's all contained within this ongoing beat. Yeah, the mood of the of a piece isn't only created by the tempo. It's created by all the things around it, too. So sometimes we talk about club owners or, or, or you know, they, they, as soon as they hear a backbeat, they think it, you know, if it's too loud, <laughs> like in a, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant setting or in a dinner setting or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could play, you know, twice as, three times as fast, but don't give them that, that backbeat. And, you know, then they'll, they'll be like, oh, that was really mellow. Mm -hmm. But we just went mm. like, you know, <laughs> 300 or something. <laughs> wow. So, that, that's, so that's a an actual technique that you use to fool restaurant owners. <laughs> you can. It's yeah, not that if you're aware of it. Very sneaky yeah, guys. Very sneaky. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, is, are there any songs that you've done that um, you feel is pushing the boundaries of what you define yourself as yeah. or, or maybe i should ask what do you guys define yourselves as oh yeah well on our like i said on our, on our web page and facebook page i think i describe it as avant-funk jazz i mean my intention to some degree is to bring more people than just the jazz audience see one of the nice things about we're you know working with a band all the time and so on is that music evolves so you know what we put on a cd is like literally a record of what happened at that moment in time you know where we were at as people as as musicians as a band and then you know we go back and we think about things and we mm -hmm. listen to things again and then you know things change so, so we're not going to go to a Redshift concert and say, they played it exactly like the album. <laughs> I don't think we no. can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would be harder yeah. to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I, part of my vision for you know, doing this band is really to promote live music and, and show why live music is different. I think it's just the, also the result of the fact that three composers, we write very differently. 
Yeah, that's very true too. It, it could be three different bands easily. Mm. Each of us could branch off and have three completely different groups, but it does come together. I mean, if you're hearing a set and you catch eight songs, they could be dramatically different from one another. And that's because uh, it'll feature the three of you and different compositions from you, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's also a, like we don't we try not to put boundaries around how we think about the arrangements. You know, a song may be reggae, like like whiskey tango, or we could do a tune that's very spacey and very open sounding, or one could be a straight blues funk. It's we we try not to think of it as a particular type of band. We just have ideas, and we all know, uh, you know, the I guess our capability. But with so many different stylistic influences coming together, like you're talking about, is this kind of the new normal? Are you are you guys an outlier as far as that, or is this just a result of the internet and the world getting smaller and all that kind of stuff? I'd say that's true. Yeah, I think that it's jazz is not one thing, and maybe never has been, but even to right. a, more of a degree now, I think it's spread out. Because like. In the 70s, when we had this, what was called then the jazz fusion, right. that was like a thing, right? Jazz and rock together, like, sure. wow. But like everything is fusion ultimately, isn't it? Right, yeah. And I think the idea of world music, which is even broader, mm-hmm. you know, creeped into jazz, uh, you know, maybe in the 80s and in the 90s, and it got even more diverse. Yeah. I mean, jazz even started as a type of fusion, right? Jazz was, you know... Yeah. Black American sure. music that you know different cultures colliding and sure. the birth of jazz is this fusion of different cultures, right? It is. I think it's important to give credit where it's due to as to the origins of, of, of you know jazz because it is you know it started out as an African American music and it started out as a African American fusion of you know African influences and heritage and and in particular, French, sort of, uh, you know, from New Orleans, the, the South mm-hmm. um, influences. Yeah. Um, so New Orleans is considered the birthplace of jazz, yeah? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, that's sort of yeah, traditionally Yeah, that's the, what I've understood. It's, and, not, it's not what the Utah jazz basketball team would say, though. No. Right? <laughs> Utah was not the New birthplace Orleans. of jazz. I don't know how they ever yeah. got, to the, call their, 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 got their name. Yeah. That, that well, always bothers my mind. I know. Well, how they, they moved. How they, did they come? Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure they moved. Did they? They moved to Utah. <laughs> well, like the Lakers were in Michigan, and they moved to L.A., and then yeah. the, they're still the oh, Lakers. Right, right, right. Right. We only have tar pits. And it had its origins in a time when, you know, it was, it was hard for musicians, especially the black musicians, to get instruments, first of all, and then to get written music. So it really was carried on as an, as an oral tradition for a long time. You know, it kind of started more as an entertainment thing and then uh, evolved into more of an art form. You know, and, and I think that happened especially with the, the, the beginning of bebop in the, in the 40s, uh, maybe late 30s, early 40s, where the, the jazz musicians, especially the black jazz musicians, were taking a, the music to a whole different uh, level as far as the, the skill and the complexity of it. And we're you know, rightfully claiming that this, was, this music was just as serious as classical music. Right. 
Have you have you guys read Miles Davis's autobiography? Mm-hmm. Yes. He, you know he talks about he was he was attending Juilliard. Yeah. During the day, right, and then sure. at night he was playing with Charlie Parker and mm-hmm. Dizzy Gillespie, and he was learning more from Charlie Parker in one night of playing than in like a whole semester of studying at Juilliard. At least you know according to what I understood from his autobiography. Yeah. But like how you know there's no. There's no real choice there. Of course, you're going to go with what's happening live and like evolving in front of you instead of the, the stale like classroom stuff, you know. Yes. Yeah. But you know his you know academic studies, I'm sure, influenced his especially his later compositional career. Anyways, mm. If you haven't read Miles's autobiography, it's or the, get the audiobook version. It's really interesting. Miles that actually reads it. So it's, that's right. That's right. I remember I when I was that. first listening to it. This is kind of an aside, but. I was like, man, the guy that's reading this book has kind of got a bad voice. It's sort of raspy and, <laughs> and like, oh, that's actually Miles Davis reading it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's funny. Well, well, you know, I mean, they call it inspiration. You know what I mean? It's, so he's there. He, he, was, he was inspired, you know, from, from the inside. You know, we call it expiration, right? I mean, we could, but it'd be weird, right? Oh, I so, see. I mean, that's inspired the, from the inside. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? It's just that idea. So he's in school where he's getting it all from the exterior. You know, he's with these amazing guys that are inspiring him you know so it's it makes sense you know so uh if someone was a orange county resident and they wanted to see a redshift show where would they go and when we have a monthly um show at the blue beat cafe in newport beach every last wednesday of the month at this point for the last Two or three years now, I think. Yeah. And, Down by um, the Newport Pier, right? Yeah. By the Newport Pier. The Blue Beat. Cool The place. Blue Beat is like the oldest watering hole in, New- in <laughs> Newport Beach, I think. Yeah. Maybe, maybe even Orange County. It's a hundred and something years old under the same name. So yeah, we got some cool old posters up there. A while back, you played at, uh, at, at La Cave. And we played mm-hmm. at La Cave. Um, we'll see uh, when we get our next gig there. It's kind of, a, and kind then, of an iconic place, too. It is that that was another is another old uh, club that's been around for a long time in Costa Mesa. That's that was cool. And then we have a we, now and then we play at the Boathouse in Costa Mesa. That's a, kind of a newer, uh, younger crowd. But they they really dig what we're doing too. There's some hipster stuff yeah. going on there too. Yeah. Good food at the Boathouse too. They do have good food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then we've been uh, we we've been doing a Sunday afternoon gig for a few times now for a couple of months um at a at a winery here and we do that as a trio actually what's it called the, the oc winery the orange coast winery it's on 16th street there in newport costa mesa nice yeah it's a lot of fun too so how can yeah. people hear your music they can go to our website uh redshiftmusicworks.com and they can get our CD there. They can order it there. They, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, same thing, Redshift Music Works. Well, there's, there's two other band members, uh, Tyler. Tyler yeah. Walton on drums. Yeah, and Martin. And Martin Torres on bass. So they couldn't be here. Uh, any, 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 any message on their behalf that you want to you go ahead and shoot out? Well, Martin is very much of an intellectual, so he would have really enjoyed this. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, I was disappointed when I heard he, we couldn't make it because Martin's a good guy. I like him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I was I very was, expressive because he he always has a good take on things. Yeah. Well, you'll hear thing. it in his music. 
And, mm, mm-hmm. and I think it's great that your drummer has not spontaneously combusted too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty nice. that happens. Right. Yeah. Although he's been on the verge a few times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always carry a fire extinguisher. In I don't know what it is about in the drummers. equipment, right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, this has been really great, and and yeah. Oliver, it's been nice to interview with you. Yeah, yeah. instead of you cool. behind the box. Definitely, yeah. definitely you made our job a lot easier. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So, I've got, final question: As fans of your own band, do you have a favorite song to take us home? I like the way that the CD ends. Mm-hmm. Okay, it ends on, ends with a song that I wrote called "High Fog." High Fog. I and played that song with you. You did play yeah. that song with me, yeah. It's a, it's a major blues, right? It's a major blues, and it's, it's very simple, but it's just an uplifting blues, yeah. Mm. That'd be nice, because um, you both, uh, guitarists, uh, Stu and Oliver, since you've both played this, uh, it'd be kind of a nice, uh, harmonious thing to, to, to take us home with. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We say we listen to it. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's High Fog out of here. <laughs> You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados, Satch Purcell, and Oliver Altine. Very special thanks to our guests today, Danny Hoffman and Stu Goodis from Redshift. You can catch them the last Wednesday of every month at the Blue Beat in Newport Beach and at various other places around Southern California. You can find their website at redshiftmusicworks.com. This show is produced by Oliver Altine. That's me. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. That's me too. Although, of course, the music we're listening to right now was composed by Danny Hoffman of Redshift. Make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Spotify now. Yay! And, of course, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the things. You know how that works. And check out our website, AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.
Thank mm-hmm. you.